Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our critics series, I am joined again by my friend Telly Davidson for another conversation about media and politics in cinema. We first did this by talking about Citizen Kane and in the 40s, and then we turned to Network in the 70s, and now we are turning to Wag the Dog and the 90s. Telly has written extensively about the 90s, and indeed he's got a book that's very, very relevant to our movie today, Wag the Dog, the great David Mamet script with the Oscar nominations and the great prescience about not just news and entertainment collapsing, about politics becoming a TV show, but the various ways in which politicians and elites duped the American nation in one scandalous way after another from the 90s to our times. It's an astonishing story to look back on more than 20 years later, and it's also a great opportunity, Tali, for me to hear your thoughts on the 90s, on culture war, on the craziness of our fake politics. But first of all, hello, it's good to talk again. How are you doing? It's great to be here as always, and it's always great to be back in action and a guest of your podcast. I really look forward to these things. Ellie, I'm glad you've made it through. I'm glad we've gotten back to our podcasting habits and our media politics discussions. First of all, how do you think about Wag the Dog in relation to your own culture war ideas and writing? I think that they both come from a sort of a similar place. So much of where we are today and where we were leading up to the Trump era and to the woke culture era can be traced back to the 90s, and in particular, when the Iron Curtain between serious, hard political news and tabloid gossip sheet news was torn down, and when Washington became sort of Hollywood East, when there was no longer really any difference between politics and show business. So much of the 90s and the uh, media environment was about that. And you had the so-called holiday from history, where it was after the Cold War, and it was before 9-11 and before the economic meltdown, where the big stories that really kept the news industry alive were O.J., John Benet Ramsey, Princess Di, and of course, Monica Lewinsky and Bush versus Gore. And Wag the Dog really sort of anticipated that, and in a way, provided an even more conservative, uh, not politically or morally, but an even more, I guess you could say, optimistic, as hard-hitting and as shocking as it seemed at the time, view or a moralistic view of what can happen when politics and entertainment become one. In some ways, what happened in real life was even weirder with Monica Lewinsky and Bush versus Gore than what happened in Wag the Dog. But of course, Barry Levinson and David Mamet couldn't have known that unless they had a crystal ball when they were making the movie. But at the time, when it came out, it certainly had its finger on the pulse of where American politics was heading to a point where the televisual and now the internet narrative became even more important than the actual truth, and where it was the ultimate example in producing fake news. And so it really anticipated so much of that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, and it fits perfectly with the motto of your book, Culture War, 
you quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn saying, such as it is, the mass media has become the greatest power within the Western world, more powerful than the legislative, executive, and judiciary. One would like to ask, by whom has it been elected? To whom is it responsible? Those would seem to be exactly the sentiments of David Mamet in Wag the Dog. As you're saying, the media invented the fake media. The news entertainment complex invented the crazy culture wars and this deception that if you live in a world of fantasy, partisanship of fantasy fighting, you're making the difference. Fake wars replace real wars, but gradually fake politics replaces real politics altogether. At this basic level of the story, if somebody tells you a guy predicted that a president would be caught in a sex scandal and he'd deflect attention by faking a war, within six months, this turned out to be true with the Lewinsky scandal, even though, as you say, there was no crystal ball, there was no way Barry Levinson and David Mamet could have known what was going to happen. It was just somehow fitting for the times for America as fitting as Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities had been about the whole question of liberalism and race hoaxes and all this sort of drama just before the Tone of Bradley L. Sharpton thing started, and other examples of artists really reading the times and figuring out, oh my God, this is what we are heading into. You have satires that turn into prophecy, which hopefully satire is not intended to, uh, to become. No satire was intended to head off. Certainly network uh, turned into prophecy when you have the whole Fox News versus MSNBC 24-hour media with anchor people telling you what to think about the news as opposed to simply reading the news the way Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow did. But I think Patty Chayefsky would have been very depressed and horrified if he saw, he might, might have felt vindicated if he saw just how on point and how prophetic his movie was. And I think Barry Levinson and David Mamet, I think they could see where the culture was going and they could see with Bill Clinton having been in office for about four or five years by the time Wag the Dog went into production and by the time it came out, people knew that Bill Clinton couldn't, shall we say, keep it in his pants even before Monica Lewinsky. So the idea of a hyper-erotic president who had John Belushi, Jackie Gleason-like appetites was certainly already a factor when they created this movie and when the book on which it was based was published. But to see it go to the next level, to where it did, I don't think that they thought anything like it was actually going to happen within the next year, let alone that there would be the kind of circus-like atmosphere of the Monica impeachment in Bush versus Gore. But like the painting in Paul Thomas Anderson's movie Magnolia said, but it happened. And it makes the movie fascinating to look back on to see just how quickly things accelerated after the movie, immediately after the movie came out. Yeah, Wag the Dog also got right the panic about national security from a fake yes. war in the Balkans, which Clinton did that too, to the fake threats of nuclear terrorism or the Bush years. That also was predicted in the movie. So it's somehow this thing that starts with, as you say, it's just a president who can't keep it in his pants. Then it turns out to involve all of the Washington spinning and therefore all of the DC media, and therefore also Hollywood becomes involved. 
but also national fantasies, fears, and combination of boredom and restlessness does something terrible to America. There is this kind of weakness that Solzhenitsyn so well identified that the media has become more important than our representative politics, our branches of government, the voting, whatever it is that we're going to do. It's also, of course, Marshall McLuhan, another very Christian guy. Solzhenitsyn was Orthodox, McLuhan Catholic, but perhaps this faith had a lot to do with their distance from the culture and their skepticism about whether these new techno-media environments are going to actually be good for us. And you're right that, on the other hand, Wag the Dog seems not to have gone at all far enough, since in Wag the Dog, the president's team has to lie systematically about worse stuff, about national security, about patriotism, to deflect attention, to bury a sex scandal. In reality, the sex scandal became part of the circus, as you're saying, and everybody was kind of proud of the part they played on either side, on both sides. So it wasn't shocking enough. It wasn't cynical enough in that sense. And I think that points to the fact that Wagner Dog has a deeply moralistic core. As you suggest, these satirists, they don't want this stuff to turn out. You could say that in a way, David Mamet, the very sophisticated, worldly Jewish guy from Chicago, was so disappointed with this sort of fake world liberalism that he became something of a conservative a decade later. So he certainly took his moralistic satire very seriously. But somehow America didn't. This was a very successful movie. It was applauded. It got Oscar nominations. Indeed, Wag the Dog has become vernacular, but by the people who are trying to wag the dog, essentially. Somehow people took it as bragging rights, not as a warning. Well, also, it was a satire. Citizen Kane and Network were satires of the media all told. They were satires of what newspaper and magazine publishing in Citizen Kane's case and what the movies and television in Network's case could become in the wrong hands all told. Wag the Dog was about something much more specific and much more tailored, even though it came out just before the internet really broke open and came out of the closet. So there were really very few references to online or to the internet or online media. They were still living in a world where they were afraid that a story was going to be broken by the New York Times or the Washington Post or Time Magazine or by Dan Rather or Tom Brokaw or 60 Minutes as opposed to a story going viral on the internet or social media. So that dates it somewhat, but it was really about the principle that the way you control politics is by controlling the narrative. In a private conversation we were having just before the podcast, I brought up one of my all-time favorite peak TV or prestige TV shows, uh, How to Get Away with Murder with Viola Davis, which went off last year. I still miss it. And I remember on the very pilot episode when she did her playing of ultimate woman lawyer law professor teaching her class, she said the first principle on how to get away with murder is change the subject change the narrative. In the OJ trial, they changed the subject from did OJ kill Ron and Nicole, which let's face it at this late date, everyone knows he did, to the police brutality and the white supremacy on the LAPD at that time, right after Willie Horton and Rodney King and the LA riots and whatnot. 
and all that. And what Wag the Dog was about was Robert De Niro's character as this political fixer says, okay, we need to have this police action lead up to war kind of a deal to change the subject so that the political narrative in the print media and on television becomes about these foreign policy tensions rather than did the president commit statutory rape. We need something strong enough to wipe that off of the front page, so to speak. And that has become the drip, drip, drip of politics, certainly during the post 9-11 run up to the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, certainly during the Trump era has been all about who has the narrative. Does Trump have the narrative about the deplorables of society, the quote unquote, the you know white working class that has been left behind? Do social liberals have the narrative about people who have been racially or discriminated against by their gender and so forth. It's all about who has the sort of made for TV, made for the movies, Hollywood storyline, who has the dominant storyline wins the day. And Wag the Dog certainly was about that aspect of the media and how corrupt it can become when you have people who are absolutely shameless setting that narrative or trying to. Yeah, I think that's right. In a way, Wag the Dog shows things getting worse and worse in 90s post-historical, post-Cold War America. But I think it also shows that everybody's getting sucked into it. You're right, everybody's fighting over the narrative, but this confrontation in a way makes everybody the same. They're all fighting over the same thing with the same means, but also nobody's above it. We're no longer in a situation where there are puppeteers putting on a show for us. They are caught in the show as well. There is no reprieve from this narrative and counter-narrative construction. That's your beliefs. That's your life. Everybody's sucked into it. You don't get independent principles or standards of judgment. The distinction between reality and fiction, between the news and entertainment, between TV and the reality TV, between morality and scandal, all of these things are being wiped out. Or indeed, what the dog suggests, it had already happened. What the dog doesn't present some kind of great new innovation. It's saying, this is what we're living through. As you say, it didn't really think about the internet. Nobody cared. The Monica Lewinsky story broke on Matt Drudge, made his career and, you know, introduced internet journalism. Why the dog doesn't care about that? It's not trying to predict a new thing. It's trying to show what has already happened, that America has been drowning in fake news already. You don't have to wait for 2016 or 2020. You don't have to wait for 1997. It had already been a done deal. Well, people today talk about systemic this and that, systemic discrimination trapped in the system and so forth. And in many ways, that is a hallmark of both David Mamet's plays and screenplays and Barry Levinson's career. Uh, In some ways, they were not suspense filmmakers the way Hitchcock was, and they were not as overtly Freudian or satirizing of Freudianism as Hitchcock was. But They were often about what happens when you put your hand over the swimming pool drain and you get sucked in. What happens when you make that one mistake grabbing for the brass ring on life? So much of David Mamet's plays were about that, when someone compromises their integrity. So you had that aspect of things going on. 
And also, Barry Levinson's career is another very interesting dynamic on that. Barry Levinson started out as a comedian, and his first major credit was as a writer on The Carol Burnett Show. So he was doing comedy writing and sketch comedies and that sort of thing. But one of his first major films, which he did with the respected actress Valerie Curtin writing the screenplay for, was the legal satire with Al Pacino and Justice for All, which was sort of to the court system what network was to movies and television in many ways. And then he did, uh, of course, Diner, which was sort of going back into a just sort of a uh, slice of life character comedy. But one of his next big projects, which was in full force when Wag the Dog was going on, was the TV series Homicide Life on the Streets. And Homicide was sort of a proto-prestige TV show and was very groundbreaking in its subject matter. But it was also one of the most thoroughly depressing, grim, my mother called it a wallow. She called it pain porn because, I mean, on Homicide, the bad guys routinely got away with it and rubbed it in the cops' faces. You had Andre Brower was one of the leads, and now he's playing a sort of a satire of his character on Homicide on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, who was this young, Jesuit-educated, very moral African-American police officer who had a stroke when he was like 40 years old because of the stress. And you had the great Gothic Koto as the captain who I think died in the TV movie series finale. And the other lead character was a closeted gay man played very well by Kyle Secor, who was molested as a child by a priest or by his uncle, I think it was, and a sex maniac, a serial killer, came after him and taunt, who got away with it on a technicality and taunted him. And he ended up killing the man. And on an episode of Law and Order SVU some years later, which was sort of a sister show of Homicide, that Richard Belzer appeared on the early days of SVU and he was a regular on Homicide, he said that the Bayless character had committed suicide. So Homicide was like the beautiful Joe or the ugly the cat or the Dr. Zhivago or terms of endearment of episodic TV. I mean, it was a tearjerker in, in the cruelest sort of way. And a lot of that came from Barry Levinson's sense of moralism of look at homicide and injustice for all was him saying look at what the criminal justice system does to people his film quiz show which was his film before wag the dog was look at all of the anti-semitism and all the consumerist corruption in the supposed innocence of the late 50s early 60s and so wag the dog was funnier even though it was a very dark comedy than those other movies were. But it came from that same kind of almost outraged moral perspective of, don't you see what's happening to you people when this kind of thing goes on in society? So it came from, if not a conservative in a social conservative way, it came from a very disappointed idealist seeing what happens when people who are totally without ideals and without any sense of right and wrong at all get controlled, get what uh, Orwell would call the whip in society. 
Yeah, I think that's right. There's a lot of moral intensity in any satire. You have to be indignant about corruption in intellectual, moral, political, artistic avenues, or else why would you bother with all this stuff? It's indeed, well-crafted satirical plot is something of a paroxysm of indignation. Wag the dog isn't obviously indignant. It's much more on the funny side, as you say, and so in a way conceals that writer and director come, as you say, from entire careers of warning about the consequences you know, of the success of modern liberalism. They were liberals. They were liberals in, of fame and good standing, let's say. But as you say, their idealism had been disappointed perhaps one too many times. They were beginning to lose faith in the power of media, let's say, to enlighten politics, to bring politics closer to the people, to make it perhaps even fairer or more transparent at least. No, they're suggesting that media, far from helping politics or helping the people get a better grasp of politics, is deluding everybody. The media people are crazy. It's making the politicians crazy and it's making the people crazy in as much they react to lies and they can no longer tell the difference between images and the real thing. In that sense, you're right. It's the climax of a career. You could say that these writers and had reflections to offer on post-war America, on the achievements and the failures, on the progress of civil rights and the loss of many hopes and much innocence along the way, on the temptations that screw people over, whether they're from up in society or at the bottom of society. But in the way in which this wag the dog sums up their careers and their reflection on America, it's not cynical, but it has bought lucidity, a clear headedness about the effects of TV, media, liberalism on America. It has bought this lucidity at quite a high price. The hopes are much lower now. The expectations of what America is likely to achieve, much lower. It seems like if we could grasp our situation, if we could have a minimum of sanity, that's enough. We don't have world historical transformation on the menu. We're not going to be making a progressive paradise. If we could retain our sanity and we return to sanity, that would be enough and it would be everything. But even at that level, the story is quite reluctant to give us reasons for hope. At the core, you have these two characters played by Robert De Niro and Dustin Hoffman. De Niro is a political operator who dresses like a wasp, funnily enough. And Dustin Hoffman plays a Hollywood producer. The meeting of Washington and Hollywood, of politics and uh, cinema, of supposedly hard-headed realism and image-making, fantasizing idealism, it's so funny that the political operative needs the Hollywood producer to produce a fake war to get the president out of media trouble. But the guy who spends all his life lying to the people through fantasizing in Hollywood is the naive in the whole scam. He is the guy who at some level has retained some idealism, strangely enough. He is presumably not seen enough of the darkness. He's not seen enough of the failures to become as cynical as the political operator is. I think that is essentially true that, you know, we used to say this is Hollywood for ugly people, but also in a way ugly inside people who are willing to do and to entertain darker deeds because they are doing it in a way for higher stakes. 
It's for control of America and in a sense, therefore, of the world. It's also, I think, very much a movie about rationalization and about the Robert De Niro character, for those who haven't watched the movie or don't remember it, as you said, it's basically the president who is very blatantly an analogy to Clinton, who had just run for and won re-election, the first time a Democrat had won two terms since the days of Harry Truman and Franklin Roosevelt, by the way. And they didn't make any attempt to show the president's Republican opponent, a senator or governor played by Craig T. Nelson, as a sympathetic character or as someone who should win. Indeed, quite the opposite. There was nothing likable or sympathetic about him. So he gets caught in a statutory rape case, and he calls in his political fixer, which is played by Robert De Niro and and his assistant played by Anne Hage, who come up with this idea to manufacture a major foreign policy crisis so as to take the heat off of the president's sexual misconduct allegations. In any case, the De Niro character was a very blatant, no question about it, satire of the real life political operative Dick Morris, who was a ruthless political operative, very much in the mold of a Karl Rove or a Lee Atwater or a Roger Stone, with the exception that Atwater and Stone and Rove worked for exclusively Republican clients, or also for the nearest liberal equivalent, which would be Clinton's right-hand man, James Carville. That would be the other person that the De Niro character was based on. Carville worked exclusively for Democrats. But Dick Morris worked both sides of the fence. He was primarily Republican aligned, and you used to see him all the time on Fox News and so forth, and he had no great love for the Democratic Party, certainly. But he would work either way, just sort of like an F. Lee Bailey or an Alan Dershowitz type lawyer. He would work either side, as we game show fanatics would say, if the price is right. And he achieved the height of his career working for Bill and Hillary Clinton. And Morris came in, he had worked with them back in Arkansas, but he came back into the Clintons' lives and came into really national prominence in the ruins of the Republican Revolution of 1994, early 1995. And what happened was he goes into the Clinton White House at that time, and the atmosphere is that of a funeral home. They have just had the biggest political wipeout of like post-war history. They have lost 50 congressional and Senate seats to the Republicans. They lost the governorships of New York and California. I mean, or California, they, they stayed Republican of New York and Texas. Texas, of course, to George W. Bush. They had just lost the year before multi-ethnic, LGBT cultural center powerhouses, New York City and Los Angeles, both of whom had progressive African-American mayors to two white Republican mayors, Richard Reardon and Rudy Giuliani. And the atmosphere in the Clinton White House couldn't have been worse at that time. And Morris comes in there like it's like Santa Claus. He's do, he comes in there like a cheerleader. And he says to Bill and Hillary that this is not the worst thing that happened to you. This is the best thing that ever happened to you. And if, if you don't realize that, then all due respect, you're too stupid to be president. 
And they're like, what are you talking about? And Morris said, all of the people who got wiped out in the Republican revolution were these old Michael Dukakis, Mario Cuomo, Ann Richards, Walter Mondale leftovers. These people, you and I have talked privately about it and about that era of Democrats. And you said to me, they were zombies, Telly. They were still living like it was 1972 when even Richard Nixon believed in the great society and public television and when Beatrice Arthur and Maude was the hottest thing on TV and Roe versus Wade was about to be decided. They were still living like it was 1964. They didn't really recognize that Reagan and even Bush Sr. had moved the needle, even after three landslide defeats. They still believed that the zeitgeist and the culture was with them. So what Morris says is, you got rid of a lot of dead weight in the Congress and the Senate and in these state houses that were still clinging to yesterday's leftovers. And now, moreover, Look at who your enemies are. Newt Gingrich and Tom DeLay run the Congress. Mitch McConnell and Jesse Helms run the Senate. Can you think of anyone outside of maybe Rush Limbaugh or David Duke from the Ku Klux Klan who triggers Democrats more than Newt Gingrich or Mitch McConnell or Jesse Helms? And now you have gone, the Supreme Court is already Antonin Scalia and William Rehnquist, the Federal Reserve is already Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke, New York, Texas, California, the three most important economic states, the states where the oil and gas industry, where Silicon Valley, where Wall Street, where news publishing, where movies and television, all Republican. Now, the only thing that is keeping the Democratic Party in business is Bill and Hillary Clinton. And that means an attack on Bill and Hillary Clinton is an attack on the entire Democratic Party. And that means that when Bill and Hillary Clinton say jump, all of the other Democrats have to say how high, because you are the Democratic Party now. You're the only ones, you and maybe Ted Kennedy are the only ones left standing. So this is not the worst thing that happened to you, it's the best thing that happened to you because it means the Democratic Party has become brand Clinton, as I said in a chapter or a subchapter of my book. And what happened was you had a lot, and this is where the sort of the Hoffman character comes in, who's a cynic, but who's also in his way a pseudo idealist. He was the stand in for a lot of traditional liberals who recognized this and who were both fascinated and horrified by how brazen and how bold and how cynical Morris and James Carville were in articulating this theory. I remember when I was a kid watching it, one of the last Latter-day episodes of uh, Dallas with my grandparents, and there was a storyline where the great character actor John Anderson who played the uh, car dealer in Psycho, played the head of a rival oil company who wanted to retire. He was in ill health. 
yeah. rather than give the company over to his son-in-law, Lee Taylor Young played his daughter. He sold the company out from under them to J.R. And Lee Taylor Young was weeping and crying. And how could you do this? He rapes women. He drives his enemies to suicide. He's a monster. And he said, I did it because he has the courage to be ruthless. And your son-in-law, who's a wet rag, doesn't. And I didn't work all my life to build up my company to let it go to someone who couldn't keep it. And what Robert De Niro's character represented in this movie was someone saying, if you want to have a progressive, tolerant, liberal government, then you can't do that by having a kumbaya Quaker meeting. You have to have someone who has the courage to be ruthless in order to get you over the line and to keep you in office. I remember talking also to a very strong Clinton supporter, very well-educated media historian. He and I were talking about President Clinton and how when, when I was young and when he was in office, I didn't care for him, not because I always disagreed with him politically, but because his personality was so shameless and so sleazy and so smarmy. And he said, well, Telly, that's the difference between you and I. He said that I loved Clinton's shamelessness and his narcissism and his self-regard because it was such an antidote for the Mondale Dukakis, Mario Cuomo, for all of these democratic Debbie Downers who were haranguing and pointing their finger and lecturing just like Jimmy Carter did with the melee speech and talking about the most depressing downer social issues. And he said, and they always lost. Clinton comes in there and he got hit the groove back. He had the fascizzle dizzle. He had the star quality and the charisma that we hadn't had since John F. Kennedy. So a lot of Wag the Dog was about the fascination of this paradox that in order to have a tolerant liberal president in office, especially if the tolerant liberal president in question couldn't keep it zipped, just as Bill Clinton couldn't in real life, then you had to have someone who was just as ruthless as Donald Trump himself and who was willing to go to any length in order to get him in office and keep him in office. And that's a very inconvenient truth particularly from a liberal point of view, to deal with. And Wag the Dog was very much a, a satire and a, and a comedy drama about that duality. Yeah, that's right. With Wag the Dog, you learn what the price you have to pay is. You learn how are you going to get and keep control of the key institutions of American politics and media. And it turns out, not only is it not pretty, but it's never going to get prettier. This is no. not a momentary sacrifice. This is not some nasty stuff that's got to be done now that's going to get better later. No, this is the reality. Everything will be ugly from now on. Everything will be, in an important sense, a lie. That's perhaps the darkest thing about the movie. You could say, after Wag the Dog, liberals instead fell in love with the West Wing. A generation of millennial liberals and progressives wanted the, the America and the White House to be the West Wing, a kind of silly preachy liberalism 
that at the same time is astonishingly successful again and again and again, as though the Clinton years had not happened. It's a show that lies about the fundamentals, because in reality, as you say, Clinton was what made the Democrat Party a success again in a situation in which it had collapsed. It's not just that the Republicans had won three straight elections, but they also then won the Congress and they lost the presidency, which hadn't happened since the days of Truman. So there really was a need for liberalism to transform. And what Clinton did is, as you say, turn the presidency into celebrity, make sure that moral considerations would just be obsolete. That then makes you ask yourself, okay, if, if it's a celebrity, what's the show? And Walk the Dog says, forget about the celebrity. The president doesn't need to be here. What you need to worry about is what's the show? And the show is America, the show. This is this dark notion that liberalism sold America on all sorts of fantasies. America would be ideal. America would be egalitarian and successful and meritocratic. It would be fair for everybody, but also rewarding. In America, everybody will be doing great. Everybody will like it too. Then it turned out, maybe you're not going to achieve so much success. Maybe you lose elections. Maybe your strongholds are going to be cities ridden with crime or poor people who are maltreated, if anything, by the very institutions of the state that are supposed to help them get out of poverty. Maybe all of this stuff will screw up. Maybe you end up with the 80s and 90s liberalism, but you could be in power while all these things are collapsing around you. It might come to a crazy situation where suddenly New York elects a Republican, crazy as that sounds, or as you're saying, LA, but you can still be in power. You can fail at all these things and keep in power because it's not about delivering on the promises of liberalism. It's about the mode of liberalism, which is fantasizing, promising the moon. That's all there is. You don't need a politician. You need a celebrity. You don't need somebody who's going to get things done. You're going to need somebody who can charm his way out of any catastrophe. And it's interesting you should bring up the West Wing, which came on about two or three years after Wag the Dog came out. I think it was 1999 when West Wing came on, ran for seven years. The West Wing was basically conceived as, what if you had President Bill Clinton, but without the scandals and without the sort of Jerry Springer tabloid sleaze? Or in a way, what if you had George W. Bush, but he was an actual card-carrying elite intellectual, as opposed to someone who ran by his gut, as opposed to, to by his Oxford or Yale or what have you training? And that's a fascinating subject for a movie or a play or a novel or a television show. But it also sort of begs the question, could you have had the good without the bad? Could you have had a Bill Clinton who wasn't as shameless and who wasn't as narcissistic as he was? Could you have had George W. Bush if he was an openly elitist intellectual? And I'm not so sure in the real life, in, in television land and in movie land, you can, but I'm not so sure in real life that you could have. It would have been nice, I guess. I think I would have rather lived under President Bartlett than lived under Clinton or George W. Bush. But is that just a fantasy at the end of the day? Yeah, uh, West Wing gives you a fatherly, not to say grandfatherly, Martin Chin for a president. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, really, America doesn't have that 
why is moral boomer on offer? That's not what politics turned into. This flight from reality that West Wing indicated is, I think, tied up with why didn't people, liberals, but Americans in generally, take Wag the Dog more seriously. It's just unremittingly ugly. It's telling people that we're lying to ourselves systematically and it's not clear that we want out. It might be that we're making things worse. We have lies and counter lies, narratives and counter narratives driving the nation crazy, but the nation might be okay with it. Maybe they don't want to be sane. It gives a very clear view of the troubles in America in a satiric way. But when once you notice it, it makes you feel kind of hopeless. West Wing was maybe as silly as I think it is, but it was optimistic. Yeah. And, and I think also, though, that Wag the Dog is probably easier to take now, given what all that's happened in real life, than it was the day it was released. And to sort of unpack what happened immediately since, obviously, Wag the Dog came out in 1997. And just a few months later, in January of 1998, was when the real life Monica Lewinsky sex scandal broke. And early into the Monica Lewinsky scandal, maybe about five or six months into it in like June, July, August in 1998, Osama bin Laden went on the 2020 television program by remote for an interview and delivered a fatwa and an intifada against the United States. And just a couple of weeks or month or so later blew up embassies in, I believe, Tanzania and Africa and so forth. And Clinton wanted to respond to that and did so. And unlike the president in Clinton's defense, unlike the president in Wag the Dog, he had every reason to strike back and probably to do even more than he actually did. But he was afraid because on the one hand, he didn't want to give away all of the deep state secrets about where Osama was, you know, to validate him and so forth. But on the other hand, to strike back when he was fighting for his political life during Monica Gate, during the, what, what was leading up to a call for his impeachment, and when he was being asked all of these questions about his sex life and his sexual acts with Monica, it looked to people, both Republicans and to peacenik, you know, Vietnam, anti-war type Democrats, like he was cynically wagging the dog. And the real life twist is that, you know, had he gone all the way and killed Osama back in 1998, there would have been no 9-11 three years later. So in a way, he was the inverse of the movie's plot. You had a president who had a super important foreign policy issue thrust on him, but because of his irresponsibility and his inability to keep it zip, he was in a self-created political scandal that he had to fight his way out of. And so it looked to the public like he was just cynically wagging the dog when he did this limited military action, which unfortunately didn't kill Osama and didn't get him back then. But an even darker real-life follow-up was what actually happened in terms of the whole Monica circus. In this way, Wag the Dog's sort of uber-premise or ur-premise of it's all about the narrative, it's all about the storyline, came true 
in the most freakadelic, crazy, unbelievable way in that Clinton decided right off the bat that he was going to lie about it. And he told Dick Morris everything that was going on. You can believe that Hillary says she didn't know. I'm not so sure I, <laughs> I believe that myself. I think she probably knew or at least had a very good idea what the score was all along. But when Monica Gates breaks, she goes on the Today Show and says, this is just more of the same vast right-wing conspiracy. The Clintons are pedophiles, the Clintons are drug dealers, the Clintons murdered Vince Foster, all this trash that's come out against us. This is just more of the same. And Clinton does the, I did not have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. And Dick Morris knew pretty much all along that that was hogwash, that he'd actually done it. And he says to Morris, well, we've just got to win then. And, he, and it has been said that the lie saved his presidency, even if it was perjurious, because it bought him some time to change the narrative. And you want to talk about cynical. What he did was he said, look, I am all that's standing between you and Mitch McConnell and Jesse Helms and Newt Gingrich. I am all that's standing between you and the theocracy. And how do you like that Mitch McConnell and Newt Gingrich and Jesse Helms and Rick Santorum are putting the words, you wanna talk about cultural appropriation, they are putting the words of Anita Hill, Murphy Brown, Gloria Steinem, Gloria Allred feminism in their mouths in order to get me. And the reaction, I mean, it couldn't have been better if it was written in a script. There was the famous feminist journalist Nina Burley was asked by a male colleague, isn't what Bill Clinton did with Monica, even if it was consensual, 21-year-old girl, secretary, subordinate, 50-year-old man, most powerful man in the world. Isn't that just as creepy as what Clarence Thomas did to Anita Hill? And she said, I'd have sex with Bill Clinton myself for putting RBG on the Supreme Court and keeping abortion legal. How do you like that for hot tea? She said, you do not have the right to fix your mouth and to put feminism in your mouth when you couldn't know sexual harassment if it slapped you in the face as a male conservative. This is about trying to use the language of feminism to take down the most pro-choice, pro-gay rights, pro-feminist president we've had up to this point. Toni Morrison went even further and said, Bill Clinton is the first president who was elected and reelected on the black and brown vote. And he is the first, this is before anyone heard of Obama, he is the first spiritually black president. And an assault on him is like an assault on the black and the brown vote and on people of color. And John Lewis, the hero of the civil rights movement said, he himself, a white person, could never make this comparison, nor should they be allowed to make this comparison. But he said uh, himself that this was like a lynching of a president. So our strategy that Dick Morris articulated way back in 1995 and late 94 worked like a charm. It changed the subject from did Clinton have an inappropriate relationship, did he commit perjury, to 
it's either him or me. It's either me or it's the right wing. I remember the month before Clinton was actually impeached and before the 1998 midterm elections was the month that Matthew Shepard was horribly killed. And that was the number one story, even ahead of the impeachment in the media. And of course, what happens? Fred Phelps comes out there with his God hates bags, Matthew Shepard burns in hell and all of that trash. And Jerry Falwell says when Ellen, uh, I, I forget if it was when Ellen gave the eulogy at his funeral or when she came out of the closet a year before on her sitcom, he says she should change her name from Ellen DeGeneres to Ellen DeGeneres. And now Fred Phelps and Jerry Falwell were extreme by any standard. They were not representative conservatives. But with that kind of thing in the water, you had a situation where Larry Flint, the pornographer, the head of Hustler, literally placed a bounty on Republican congressmen and senators who were out to impeach the president to see if they had any sexual misconduct in their past. Unfortunately, they didn't find the worst one who was Dennis Hastert, but they found others like Bob Livingston and indeed Newt Gingrich himself who had had cheating scandals in the past. I mean, this in its way, just as psychedelic and just as weird and just as campy and over the top as any movie satire where you have these religious right fanatic preachers and a gay man's funeral and you have a pornography king putting bounties on investigating congressmen's wives and you have black civil rights heroes comparing a white president's misfortunes to lynching and this actually happened in real life after monica gate and it came out. And the end result was Bill Clinton, the 1998 midterms became a total referendum on Clinton and impeachment. And the American public sided with Bill Clinton. He won the narrative. The Congress almost went back to the Republicans, the Congress and Senate. The Senate was practically 50-50 after 98 in 2000, and they didn't get back complete control of the Senate until the 2002 midterms after 9-11, and then they lost it four years later and didn't get it back until 2014. And the backlash was so intense that 20 years later, when the left wing was crying out to impeach Trump, until Chiara Mella or whatever his name was, the whistleblower and Bindaman and Yovanovitch forced her hand. Nancy Pelosi held back from impeaching Trump, not because she didn't want to do it or because she was a coward or anything like that, but because she remembered 98. She remembered how Clinton was cynical enough to be able to flip the script from impeachment being the worst disgrace that could ever happen to a president to impeachment being a raw, raw, sis, boom, ba rally in favor of the president. And indeed, Donald Trump's fans turned out in droves even before the whole insurrection business with the first impeachment. I mean, when you look at the results of the election, I believe it was a straight election. A lot of conservative people do not believe it was an honest election. But even if for the sake of argument, you believe it was a straight accounted election, Trump lost Arizona and Nevada and a couple of other states by like 10, 25,000 margins. He lost 
Georgia by like a 12,000 margin. Had Bernie or Warren or someone further left than Joe Biden been on the ticket, or certainly had coronavirus never happened, he would have won the presidency and been reelected. And part of that is because instead of impeachment being a disgrace for a president, it became a get out the vote, I'm oppressed, I'm the victim here, feel sorry for me, there's a vast conspiracy against me. It was the vast right-wing conspiracy against the Clintons, it was the deep state against Trump, and because of the grammar of politics, as Pauline Kael would say about the grammar of cinema, was rewritten by the Clinton impeachment in a way that not even Wag the Dog was cynical enough to anticipate. Yeah, I think you're right. It's interesting how little Wag the Dog concerns itself with domestic policy issues or the party alignment or things like that. The whole notion is, well, it's America, it's patriotism. You got to fake a war. And it is true that Clinton came bombing places and did all this stuff. It is true that America was brought together around war in Afghanistan and Iraq. So these fundamentals are true, but it's strangely neglectful of the domestic scene. And thinking about your book and about the things you're saying, I think the, the reason the movie is oriented this way is because domestic America is no longer, let's say, liberals and conservatives or the, the partisan. America domestically is television. It's a show, it's narratives. And that in a way goes too far because as you say, the movie doesn't even predict some of the shocking and shameless things that you'd expect in a black comedy, that you'd expect in a very moralistic satire of American political mores. And yet it makes sense to say, if America is turning into a TV show, then it is about your favorite villain or hero. It is about a soap opera. It is about stuff that people feel very passionate about that is nevertheless empty because you're no longer connecting your opinions to actions. I think you note very correctly the, the crazy contortions through which people put themselves during the Monica Gate and later Clinton scandals. What the hell happened to these people who were supposedly fairly sturdy ideologically or convinced? Well, that didn't matter as much as putting yourself through the media circus. And in that way, I think Wag the Dogs, as you say, its moralism was where it failed to anticipate and failed to go far enough when you look back. Wag the Dog was predicated on the fact that a smoking gun where he actually did do it of serious sexual misconduct would be enough to sink a president. And Monica proved that that was not the case. And Donald Trump proved it again with the whole grab him by the pussy and things like that and the Stormy Daniels, that that was not the case, that the American public wouldn't necessarily turn on a president who was not just accused, but who was straight up guilty of serious sexual misconduct. And not only that, it failed to predict that. And for a movie that was as much about the narrative, it was a very tightly knit movie. We really saw everything from Anne Heche and De Niro and Hoffman's point of view and really never left them and went out of their sort of inner circle. And what was really going on with Monica Gate and Bush versus Gore, the aftermath of Monica Gate, was you had a uh, 
one of the worst environments for political and media journalism that you would ever have. You had a situation where journalism was more elite than it ever was before that. You couldn't get hired at the biggest magazine at the time, not in terms of circulation, but in terms of prestige, was Marty Peretz's New Republic. And they were openly, systemically, and in every other way, discriminatory against Blacks and Hispanics. I mean, you couldn't, it, people made jokes about how they wouldn't hire Black people or Hispanic people or people of color for the most part, and very few women too. And if you didn't go to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or Columbia or Princeton, or at the very least NYU or USC or Berkeley, you didn't stand a chance no matter what color or background you were over there. And it was the same thing. I mean, the era when a state college graduate like Dan Rather or Walter Cronkite could hit the top in the news was over by then. I remember this myself as a youngster starting out. In the early 90s, even with the horrible early 90s recession, owning a newspaper or a magazine was like having a license to print money or a book publisher. And then by the late 90s, you had a situation where even when the rest of the economy was going through the roof, that was when the internet was first coming out of the closet. And the internet posed a threat to newspapers and magazines and book publishers that movies and even television never could because the internet was print-based as well as visual-based. And the internet essentially made all local news national and all national news local. So when the Great Recession happened 10 years later, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the LA Times suffered and Newsweek almost went bankrupt, but they were bought out by oligarchs, by Dr. Patrick Soon Xiang bought the LA Times, the pharmaceutical giant. Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. You know, Rupert Murdoch, of course, bought the Wall Street Journal after buying everything else in the media and so forth. But it was the small newspapers and magazines, the weekly advertiser type magazines and newspapers locally that never recovered from that. And so you had a situation in book publishing where, you know, some 24-year-old waiting tables at Starbucks writing his screenplay or writing her novel was expected suddenly to have a New York or a Hollywood literary agent and a referral from a John Grisham level author before they would even be looked at by a major publisher, not because the publisher was concerned about quality, but because they were concerned about covering their ass, because they were concerned, you know, it's the same reason that it's easier to get $100 million for a Jennifer Aniston movie or a Tom Cruise movie than it is to get $20 million for a movie with no names in it. Because if the $100 million movie fails, the person who greenlit it can say, well, how was I supposed to know it failed? It, it's going to have Meryl Streep as the star, whereas the $20 million movie with no names in it, if it fails, then you're going to be in the unemployment line. 
if you were the one who approved it. And so you have a, this grotesquerie where it is harder to get into publishing, in book publishing or the news media than it ever was for a white person and harder than it ever was for a black person or a Hispanic person after Jim Crow racism ended and where they're more elite than ever in that way, but where the actual product is trashier and more tabloid than it ever was. The most powerful woman journalist of the late 90s outside of maybe Leslie Stahl and Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters was the New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd. And she wrote during Monica Lewinsky, she wrote articles like there was one where she fantasized Monica writing in her dear diary about the big creep bill and about what a bitch Hillary was and about how she was going to have state dinners with John Travolta and Leonardo DiCaprio. And then she wrote an article where Al Gore was singing gay show tunes to his bald spot in the mirror. I mean, this kind of, if you pardon my French, this kind of shit made Rona Barrett look like Dostoevsky. And yet she literally won the Pulitzer Prize in journalism for turning out that kind of drivel. That gentleman I told you about, that very pro-Clinton gentleman, very well-educated, master's degree, and he is a historian of the Pulitzer Prizes. And I asked him, what was the Pulitzer's worst moment besides Walter Durante, the Soviet sympathizer of the 30s? And he didn't even bat an eye. He said Maureen Dowd in 1999. Nothing else even came close. That was considered Pulitzer-level journalism. Journalism had so degenerated at that point. And you have the whole, if it bleeds, it bleeds mentality of OJ, of John Bonet, of Johnny Versace, Princess Diana, of all of these scandals going on, of which Monica and the lead up to Bush versus Gore was the ultimate scandal. The other thing that Wag the Dog didn't anticipate was the Studio 54 level decadence of the mainstream media in 1998, 99, and 2000, and ultimately how that fed the public. Al Gore, when he ran for president in 2000, whatever you think of Al Gore, I wasn't a really big fan of the man <laughs> to begin with, not that I loved George W. Bush all that much either, but he decided that he was going to run on distancing himself from the Clintons, from their misbehavior. He and Tipper always thought of themselves because they were the yuppie baby boomer couple in Washington before the Clintons got there. And they always said the Clintons would have never been able to win against Daddy Bush had it not been for them. And they really resented the fact that the Clintons kept the curtain firmly in place and always viewed them as Nancy Reagan or Barbara Bush would say as the help. Susan Thomas's was uh, quoted as saying to Al Gore something to the effect of, there's going to be a co-presidency here, Al, and her name isn't Al Gore. And then when Hillary said after the whole scandal, guess what, I'm going to run for Pat Moynihan's Senate seat in New York, same time you're running for the presidency, the Iron Curtain came down. And it was sort of like the stereotypical Jewish or Irish or Italian mother who says, haven't I suffered enough? Alan Tipper Gore said, haven't we suffered enough? 
with the Clintons doing this to us. And they said that any discussion of our shortcomings, of things we need to do to win this, is going to get you cancel cultured. You'll never eat lunch in this town again. And they went through like five or six different can't they went Donna Brazil and Michael Hooley and Ron Klain and and Daly and Squire and Shrum and they just changed who was running their campaign like someone changing their workout clothes because no criticism of Al Gore was allowed. I should back up a moment and say that right after Monica Gate, they did a poll. I think it was Time Magazine and CNN, Time Warner did a poll and said, assuming George W. Bush, the president's son who'd just been overwhelmingly reelected in a bad year for Republicans with one third of the Texas black vote and half of the Hispanic and Native American vote in Texas. So you didn't have to be you know, Sherlock Holmes to figure out that he would be the probable nominee. And of course, everyone knew Gore was going to be the nominee in 2000. And they said, if the election were held today, who would win. And this is the height of the dot-com economy. This is after the Cold War, before 9-11. This is when we have a government surplus for the first time in like 25 or 30 years. Best stock market since Ronald Reagan. Best economy since the 50s and the Mad Men era. And Al Gore lost that election by 10 points, by a Walter Mondale, Michael Dukakis level landslide. And he attributed that to Clinton fatigue and to people's disgust over the Clinton scandals. There was only one problem. Clinton reached his highest approval rating in the public the week he was impeached. And when Clinton left office, he left office with Ronald Reagan and Dwight Eisenhower's approval rating. And Hillary won election to the New York Senate by 10 points, by a landslide. And so what happened in effect was that the Clintons were rewarded for their sex scandal. And Al Gore, with his stay-at-home, cookie-baking, nurturing, perfect political wife, Tipper, who crusaded against immoral rock and rap lyrics and sex and violence in the movies and on television, lost when they were the moralistic couple. And it was the swing town, boogie nights couple that won everything. And not even Wag the Dog was cynical enough to anticipate that happening, that the Democrats who led the socially conservative, moral, personal lifestyle would go out the spit valve, and the ones who led the Studio 54 lifestyle would be universally beloved, except by the right wing. Yeah, you're right. The decadence of the 90s is especially in politics and journalism is hard to reckon now, partly because, of course, everybody takes it for granted now, whereas it was quite a shock at the time and it, uh, in important ways, went under the radar. People did not think that they were living through crazy days, even though it led to, as you're saying, all the circus after the Monica Lewinsky scandal and the impeachment. How could people not have seen this? Well, as you're saying, uh, the newspapers were money printing machines. 
if you look at how much advertising they were selling, how big the magazines and newspapers got, how many people they were hiring, it's shocking since, of course, with the loss of advertising money, the industry has collapsed since. It was an age of decadence, but it seems to have felt good at the time. And so, indeed, neither was Clinton personally punished or humiliated politically in some way, nor, on the other hand, were the media elites that, as you said, were getting more and more close-minded and eager to close the gates around themselves, they weren't able to look at what is happening in America either. They had no idea what they were unleashing. As you're saying, the, the Clinton scandals led to the Trump scandals and to national shamelessness in important ways. Nobody minded. This notion that political and media elites are above scrutiny, but also above consequences. That's where it came from, that crazy 90s. And that, I think, is tied up with what Wag the Dog is warning about. You are turning reality into television. You're turning news into entertainment. You're turning politics into a TV show. The merging of Hollywood and DC is going to be crazy. You will not know the difference between reality and narratives anymore. And from the liberal point of view, it was victory. It was the rebirthing of the Democrat Party, the Clinton Party. The Clintons indeed dominated that party 20 years more. It was an astonishing achievement from that point of view. And you didn't have to worry about the consequences of putting the country through such a shock. Wack the Dog was entirely correct about the craziness that follows simply from using TV powers fascinate people with counter-narratives and scandals and imaginations, and you can sucker them into or out of anything. What is that going to do? What are the consequences going to be to political morality, to the credibility of institutions? What is that going to do to the media themselves? Obviously, the triumphant liberals of the 90s didn't think about these things. But you're right. On the other hand, Wag the Dog seems to be all about saying, well, the people may be suckered, but the people aren't corrupt. The politicians are corrupt, the operatives, the media, the fixers, they're corrupt, they're lying, but the people, they're just being lied to. They are not involved in this madness. If they were told the truth, as perhaps the movie is telling them the ugly truth about America, then they would react. Then their indignation would punish the people who so exploit them. That may have been a mistake. As you're suggesting, Wag the Dog doesn't even dare contemplate the possibility that the nation might applaud Clinton, that all the success of the 90s, however decadent or insane, might be enough for people to applaud him, and they will not have moral qualms. It doesn't matter how screwed up he is and how much he's screwing up America. Everybody will applaud themselves and him. There was a lot of that, and there you see that the movie, in order to make its point about the power of the media over our lives, has to assume that the people are not corrupt, that their judgment is still decent American principles. Well, maybe the electorate will get swept up in the fantasy land as well. Well, I've always felt that a lot of the impetus for when I was writing Culture War came from that, in that growing up and coming of age in the 90s, and the other big book on the 90s that came out a year or two after mine was The Red and the Blue, uh, Steve Kornacki's book. And Steve and I are roughly the same age, and we had very similar 
backgrounds and experiences. He went further with his journalism career than I did. You know, only one of us has his own show, obviously, but we're the same age, the same sort of parents and grandparents came from the same sort of social class, East Coast, me on the West Coast, and that sort of thing. And I think we both realized that as much fun as it might have been to be young at the time, that there was a really seriously, sort of in a David Lynch sense, really creepy aspect to the 90s. And especially as people who were fascinated by film and television, as we were, clearly, and by book publishing, and wanted to go into those industries, so that we sort of saw up close what was going on, as much as a young person starting out could see what was going on in the late 90s and the early 2000s. I think that a lot of it was to sort of articulate that it was, even if it was, you know, all friends and Buffy and stock market and good times and, you know, Sugar Ray on the radio, as we remember the good times, there was also a really dark aspect to the 90s as well that was going on. And in many ways, the 90s were the 70s part two. It is not an accident that you had all of these sort of pseudo existentialist movies at the end of the 90s, like American Beauty and Magnolia and Girl Interrupted and things like that. And that so many movies and TV shows, you had that 70s show, you had Game Show Network, you had Boogie Nights, you had Studio 54, The Last Days of Disco, Girl Interrupted, Almost Famous. You had all of this 70s nostalgia because you had, in many ways, the 70s were at least honest about their self-indulgence and their sort of post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, everyone having a little, you know, trash out and, and having fun for themselves. And the 90s weren't honest about how corrupt they really were in so many ways. And I think that's sort of where some of the ardor and some of the passionate voice in my book came from. And I think that's where a lot of the attitude in the movie Wag the Dog came from as well, is that you had degeneracy and you had decadence, but you had people who went around the De Niro and the Hoffman characters, even when they were plotting murder, even when they were plotting these outrageous things, they still thought of themselves as nice people, as people who were doing the right thing and the greater good. There was a dishonesty to the decadence of the 90s and an almost a self-righteousness or a self-congratulation. And again, you see that with why Lilla and Hillary Clinton succeeded and why George W. Bush with his swagger and his attitude succeeded and why someone like Gore, who was a pain in the ass in a lot of ways, but in a pseudo-intellectual pretentious know-it-all way, as opposed to in a up your nose with a rubber hose defiant sort of way, why he reached the end of his political, if not his elite career back then, and why someone as old money and genteel as Bush's father was forced to retire back then. Because you had a situation where there was a dishonesty about just how far 
the corruption had gone. And you had in sort of very much in the way that liberals, or rather I should say that conservatives criticized the sort of human resourcesization of today's society. You had very much of the beginnings of that sort of HR mentality that we're nice people who are doing nice things. We would never write a nasty rejection letter. We would never blame you for anything but when we still, you know, aren't going to let you have the job kind of a deal. And uh, I think the other thing that I'm brought to mind with this is that in my book, I made an analogy with Gore to the late Jean Harris, the famous or infamous woman who killed, she said, and I tend to believe her, by accident, her boyfriend. She was the headmistress of the Madeira School, which was the most prestigious women's finishing school outside of Miss Porter's in the country. Catherine Graham went there. I think Barbara Walters did. Graham's daughter, Lolly Weymouth, went there long before Miss Harris got there. And she was involved with the Scarsdale diet doctor, Herman Tarnauer, for many years. And when he was throwing her over for a younger woman, she also coincidentally went through a prescription drug withdrawal and decided to commit suicide. And so she went to his house to say goodbye, what she thought was going to be a nice goodbye before killing herself. And she found her rival's panties and lingerie all over his bedroom. And so she pulls out the gun and says, I'm just going to kill myself right here. He grabs it, it goes off, he gets killed. And she had one of the biggest CSI forensic artists in the world saying that's exactly what happened. But nobody would believe that, of course, because, I mean, she had a very good motive for killing him. So it all went down to her testimony. And her lawyer said, looking back, if you could have seen her in my office sobbing, crying about how sorry she was and how guilty she was that he died instead of her, no one would convict her. But because of her inbred sense of old money, dignity, and honesty, she wasn't going to camp it up on the witness stand. And what happened was she came across as a Beth Jarrett from Ordinary People, Nurse Ratched, Margaret Thatcher, cast iron bitch by her own admission looking back. And they convicted her and she spent 12 years in jail wrongfully, I, I would say, until she was let out after a massive heart attack and she finally got her freedom back. And her best friend was the journalist Shanna Alexander from 60 Minutes who wrote a book about the case. And she said, on some subconscious level, Mrs. Harris would have rather been convicted of murder than do something that she would have thought would have lost her dignity on that witness stand. And on some level, what I said in Culture War, in the same voice, on some level, Al Gore would have rather lost an election for president than to have bent the knee to just how Jerry Springer, Big Brother, tabloid trash out the media had become during 1998, 99, 2000. There were stories of Gore by a press chief, Carter Eskew, where he said, we used a quote, a whip and a chair with the press. I mean, Gore treated the reporters that were covering him like Judge Judy treats her contestants. And he would demean them purposely. He would be rude to them. He'd give them like fruit roll-ups and stale sandwiches for on the plane. 
He wouldn't talk to them. He'd break appointments and all that. Whereas Bush was doing all of what Clinton did in 92 to win over the press. He would have gourmet food from like Wolfgang Puck and Payard and whatnot on the plane and Perrier water and give them nicknames like Dolce and Panchito and Honey and Sweetie and that type of thing, while Gore was being nasty to them. And the punchline to the joke is, what did Gore study as an undergraduate in Harvard before he tried Vanderbilt Law School? What was his major? English and journalism. What was his thesis on, his Harvard thesis in 1969, the importance of making a good impression on reporters and on television using Nixon versus Kennedy? What did he do in the Vietnam War? He wrote for Stars and Stripes. So if he hadn't been a politician, he would have been a journalist. He would have had Paul Moyer's job on Eyewitness News out here in L.A. probably, or he would have been a highly paid Michael Kinsley, Andrew Sullivan type columnist with his connections. And he was so moralistically horrified at how gossipy and how trashy journalism had become, that he couldn't help but punish the journalists who were covering him during the campaign. Yeah, I think you're right that for his strange arrogance, aloofness, ineffectiveness, Gore was not a celebrity. Gore was not into glamour and sleaze. He was not Clinton. And presumably, that's why he lost. It's a strange thing to think through how sleazy and therapeutic the 90s made the media. And that's something we've had to live with ever since. But at the time, the success worship and the glamour, all of these things appeared, if not as progress, then at least as some kind of welcome relief, as some kind of entitlement. America has finally climbed out of the difficulties of history into the sunny uplands where you can just enjoy yourself, where you can throw away the old restraints, whether they are liberal or conservative. And instead, through the magic of the media, you're going to be your own money printing machine. You're going to be your own power over democracy. You will fascinate people. You will charm them. You will make them fantasize and they'll keep voting your way. The country will move in your direction. There was no grasp of how dangerous and corrupting the powers of the media are, among other things, to the people in the media themselves. That's indeed something that we have to reckon with. And there is much enjoyment and much insight in Wipe the Dog, but it can't deal with all of these things. And so I'm glad to have you on the podcast here and to recommend to our audience, just go online, go to a bookstore, wherever you buy your books and buy Telly's book. Culture war, how the 90s made us who we are today, whether we like it or not. The book is better uh, than the 90s, people. uh, (laughs) You you judge for yourself whether that's a compliment. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I don't know if that's damning with faint praise or if that's a great compliment, (laughs) but no, it's it's always a pleasure and 
working in the in the film business, my day job with wonderful uh, motion picture sales agent Jeff Porter of Porter Pictures, and staying sort of abreast the media. As for uh, I'm probably the only person alive who's written for things as far left as Attention.com and Progressive Populist, and as conservative as National Review and American Conservative. But all of them are great outfits, and so as one of that generation that came after the prosperity of the media, when the media was in decline, I've always been uh, happy to go wherever they had a good operation, whatever the ideology was, and wherever they, you know, were open to new ideas. You can see some of my work on Al Gore's internet, speaking of him, as they say, online. I shouldn't say enjoy the culture war. I don't know if anyone can, but enjoy the book. As far as Wag the Dog, I've heard it said that some of the most interesting pieces of certainly film and literature and even television were the ones whose failures were as interesting as the successes. And Wag the Dog had both. It's one of those ones where its failures are as interesting and as revelatory as its successes. So it's it's worth looking at again for that reason alone. Yes, indeed. Well, Tali, we are at the end of our long conversation here. And in a way, going through modern America, Citizen Kane 41, 1976, Network, and now 97, Wag the Dog. We have to figure out whether there's something else that follows in the line of these cinematic reflections on the way the media can corrupt American politics. For now, we'll leave our audience with Wag the Dog and with your book, Culture War. All the best, Deli. Bye-bye. Thank you, and to you too.